Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. So Donald Trump is going to be the next president of the United States. I yeah, I don't really think about it. It's too yeah, I don't. I I feel like I've read every opinion piece and heard every possible podcast there is to say about this. So we're we're going to move on from analyzing Trump's the win. The potato. Um, but but we are despairing. Uh, however, we are also preparing. Uh, the normalization of his bonkers brand of misogyny, racism, xenophobia, and blatant disregard for truth demands action. What can we do and what can books do? Today's show is about resistance, and we have the perfect guest to help us with our fight. Octavia, can you introduce her, please? Sure thing, babe. Um, today we've got the wonderful Selena Gordon with us in my kitchen, which is great. Um, she's a British poet, performer and author living in London and she's written a wonderful memoir called Springfield Road, published by Unbound, who also published The Good Immigrant, which uh, includes one of Selena's essays which we're going to be talking about today. Um, and then she has also written and performs poetry and does all kinds of amazing stand-up and musical stuff. Um, and we're really we're really thrilled to have her with us today. Um, she also uh, hosts and produces the Book Club Boutique, which is a literary salon in East London. Um, and she's been variously described as the doyenne of the spoken word scene, the May West Madam of the Salon, and this is my favorite, everything the Daily Mail <laughs> is terrified of. Yeah. <laughs> which is to be applauded, because that's a dirty rag. I'm in <laughs> favor of everything that the Daily Mail is terrified of, including you, Selena. Thank you. Welcome. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Hello. 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 Um, so uh, Selena's here, as you can tell. Uh, we'll be talking to her first about resistance. Then Octavia and I will be discussing the theme, resistance. And then we will have Selena back to do some book recommendations. So stay tuned to NTS. So let's get right into the interview. Thank you so much for coming, Selena. And we asked you to start by doing some of your amazing uh, performance poetry so can you okay well since it's us? resistance i think i should probably do this list do this one so this is uh, a new poem and this poem is called titanic i used to love the film titanic the last 45 minutes or so after the sex scene in the car when the seawater starts to flow the sinking ship all slopping and swaying the band how they bravely keep on playing a man dressing up as a girly waif to hide in a boat and get himself safe the human catastrophe, the chaos, the panic and drama I used to love that film Titanic, all that melodrama but now it just looks like the Channel 4 News people grabbing for life jackets with no coats and no shoes now I'm just reminded of the plights of refugees, all those human beings drowning in the open seas, people hungry and cold in overcrowded boats, crying for help with salt-burned throats. There's a Syrian Leo and there's Kate the Kurd. I used to like Titanic, but now it looks absurd. And my love will go on. It's a terrible song. I said I used to like Titanic, not Celine Dion. <laughs> I actually, I got goosebumps. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful and so true. Thank and you. What a fucking human catastrophe we are. That's that's like right on the money. Yeah, it's also um, I think that poem is a great example of how resistance can come in all different forms, and um, in that sense, it's humor. So, can you talk a little bit about? You know, we, we've said, can you come in and talk about resistance, which is quite <laughs> yeah. a big theme. Join my revolution. <laughs> yeah, that's but, it. But 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 when we said that, what? 
what did you think about and what kind of literature were you thinking about when, when we asked you to join? Well, um, I think um, the first thing that sprang to mind when you wanted to talk about resistance is, is I made a joke then, I was like, join my revolution. But very uh, recently, just last week, my mum was on a train and um, some people got on a train, this young couple in their 30s, well-dressed, and they just started going talking really loudly about Trump, that America's got the right idea, black this and black that. My mother's a really beautiful 70-year-old Jamaican lady. And she says she's never felt so uncomfortable. It, it was just, and this isn't America, and this isn't the 1930s. This was a sleepy train in Sussex, going through leafy Sussex at four o'clock tea time. So this isn't kind of 11 o'clock outside a kebab shop in Hackney, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and I was just, no one said anything in the carriage. And my mum was with my sister, who's got special needs. So you've got a young couple, well-dressed, looked like they had jobs, with my mum's kind of way of describing, looked like they had jobs, well-heeled, just actually enjoying making her feel awkward and uncomfortable. And it's a 70-year-old pensioner and a, and a you know, a, 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 my sister obviously has, you know, you can it's, it's visible that she's sort of special needs. And, 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 and then they were just like, what are you looking at, you black bitch? They said to my mum, like, to my lovely mum. So I, I just, I, I was shocked by this story. Okay, nothing happened. They got off the train. They made her feel horrible. They got to their stop. They got off. So don't worry. Like, no one was hurt in this experiment of fascism. But... I just think um, it was just shocking how no one said anything. My mum's telling of the story, the description, fills my head with a picture of my mum learning, relearning how to cower. She says she hasn't been spoken to like that since the 60s. And it was just, it was just, and she just remembered how to react. Don't look, don't engage. You know, all those, those learning mechanisms that you have from being bullied, from being made to feel. And nobody in the, in the train carriage stood up or said anything. And so there was this whole kind of thing about what do we do in that situation? And so I've been thinking about that a lot this week. And I was like, what do we do in that situation? Wouldn't it be amazing if there was a thing that we did? Wouldn't it be amazing if there was a thing that was as strong as Zeke Heil, right, for example? Uh, wouldn't it be amazing? So I've just been like really like racking my brains. The only thing I can come up with, I'm, I'm, I'm still thinking about it. The only thing I can come up with, I mean, obviously that, you go if you see something like that on a train go and sit with the victim turn your back to the bully ignore the bully because the one thing they don't want is to be ignored dilute it if you if you're also frightened and you don't want to get involved just walk up the train as if you're going to the loo and actually get the guard you know and there's a there's a phone number you can ring too but i was thinking there's got to be something stronger than that than you know, ignore them, you know, there's got to be, and wouldn't it be amazing if there was like something as strong as e Carl? and the only thing I can come up with is I tick other, and if, if you're on a train carriage, and people just suddenly just started, like I am Spartacus, I am Spartacus, <laughs> I am Spartacus, I am Spartacus, and if people in a train carriage just started, so you're not actually addressing anything, but just until the whole train carriage is stood up, and the only person sitting down is the, is the racist, that would be pretty powerful, yeah, visually, yeah. Anyway, that's all I've come up with. I'll, I'll keep thinking, but I don't know. I, I think you're absolutely because right. I am Spartacus, an incredibly powerful scene, and that thing where you're saying I will take the blame, I will, you know, and I just think that would be amazing. Yeah, and also that thing where you're just like you're not alone. Like we are many, actually. Yeah, yeah. We may not all look the same, but we are many. We don't align with those fuckers. We align with you. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, we're all immigrants. We're all there's so so many. I don't think there's such a thing as a kind of not. We're all so mixed up and so so many different we've all come from all over the place you know i mean my great 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 was scottish and uh went over to jamaica 
to um you know to to you know take over plantation or whatever so who's the immigrant it's actually it's actually the other way around you know so yeah yeah, yeah. so what do you think literature has to do with that how uh, how do how do we get those ideas into people's heads is 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 there a role for poetry is there a role oh, for oh god i think books? books and poetry and music are more more important now than ever yeah, I completely agree. I think it's a. I think people are, are are paying far too much attention to reading sort of clickbait articles that, that, that feed the fear, and reading um, you know things that, that that stir up. I think we should not listen to our politicians. I think we should stop letting them have so much airtime. I think we should stop letting them command all of our social media. So even you know even if we're angry or outraged about it, we're sharing his face over and over again, Farage's face, Trump's face, whatever, over and over again. What we should be promoting is is people that are working the refugee kitchen, a refugee community kitchen in Calais and Dunkirk, for example. We should be get their faces as famous as Trump's face. It's the first place to start, and that can be promoted with poetry and with music and and through books and you know when the whole brexit thing was going on did you notice that celebrity love island was on for one hour every day a kind of prime time tv it's like if that had been poetry for one hour a day how many people would have been more informed would have been passionate would have been inspired to vote i'm not saying to vote for or against i don't care about that it's it's fight it's the fight against apathy it's just getting people to go out and vote getting people to feel empowered get people to realize how important their vote is their voices because you know even with the um the trump thing it was hardly it was, it was again it was like what was it like 46 percent didn't even vote mm. same with the brexit thing wasn't it yeah it was shocking huge shocking amount of people just didn't even bother can't bother dumbass I mean, that's yeah. the thing that's hard, I think, for writers and performers as well, is how they get or how you get your voice out from the gang that's already on your team and mm. already with you, you know, and already I am Spartacus. How, like, how do you bridge that gap and get, in, get into the living rooms of that horrible couple who were racist to your mother? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. How do you get their attention? That's what I find. That's the thing, because we don't want to do that thing where it's just our echo chamber and we're all nodding yeah. seriously, going, isn't it awful? And wringing our hands and going, isn't it awful? Another glass of wine, dear. I mean, it's not, it's, yeah, it's trying to get through to that. I mean, I try and hit a really broad, if you kind of look at the gigs I'm doing, I try and hit a really broad sort of spectrum from kind of, you know, sort of teenagers and festivals and raucousy stuff to BBC kind of more straight laced stuff to like really, you know, and I do use swearing and I do use humour to get through to that, you know, where I'm sort of talking about something actually quite heavier or darker, but sort of using the cock jokes to get me there. You know what I mean? That kind of, like, yeah, I definitely use, use cock a lot. <laughs> Cocks are hilarious. <laughs> they are. Whoever so invented them. You, um, you're a writer and a poet and a performance poet. You do lots of different things, but um, you know, I, you're a very, very powerful reader of your own poetry. And I wonder, um, was that always part of the poetry that you were writing when you were younger, or is that something that came later? When did you realize that you loved speaking the words that you had written? Ooh, oh, that's a funny question. I don't know um, is the answer. Uh, it's something that's just grown and developed. I literally have done nothing else with my life. Okay, so, you know, if you just do one thing with your life and you don't, I've never sort of done anything else. I'm, I'm actually unemployable. <laughs> I created this job and I like it. You get wine. But, um, I just, you know, and I just, you know, like if you walked out the door and you rubbed a stone 
with your thumb, after 20 years, you'd actually make a dent in the stone. And that's what writing is, and that's what poetry is. Mm. You're just easing and rubbing away at that one eroding erosion to get where you want to get, to make it your voice, to say what you want to say. Um, but with, re with, with regard to all the things that we're talking about, um, um, I've kind of got this, you know, if, if, a, if someone runs into the street and shouts, my head's on fire, you don't kind of stand there going, my head is potentially quite flammable too. All heads matter. You don't do that. You go, oh my God. So that's the thing that's kind of, that's sort of kind of pissing me off at the moment. It's too much of, you know, it's like, honestly, people that know bad weather, if they say there's a storm coming, just fucking believe them. Just get on it. Like then this and there, you know, and, and black journalists and black writers and poets have been banging on and saying, "Oh, there's a storm coming," and everyone just going, "All storms matter," or whatever. You know what I mean? And yeah, it, totally. so you know, that, so the signs of you know, this isn't like a sudden creepy, you know, sudden. This this has been building and building and building, and these, you know, and the hate crimes have been getting more and more, and so has the poetry been getting more and more. I because mean, you know, I'm doing all these gigs all the time, so I'm hearing a lot of poetry. I'm hearing what my peers are writing, what my friends are writing, what my friends are tweeting about. And, you know, and there's definitely, I mean, I've, I've never um, written, so I've been really quite um, writing really quite political stuff. Kind of let it go, you know, kind of let it go for a bit. But I'm definitely like, hang on a minute. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. It's, what, it's, yeah, it, yeah. it's the time for it, for sure. And that's what I think The, the Good Immigrant is such a great, um, it's a great book. It's a great collection of essays. If you haven't read it yet, you, you really ought to, everyone. Um, but it's like the time. It's the time for those voices that, you know, I, I don't know. I wanted to ask you about categorization because it's, it's bullshit and it's frustrating. But at the same time, it's how the industry works sometimes and, it, and it's necessary. And obviously, The Good Immigrant is a collection of essays written by people who are, I guess, it, you're classified as minority ethnic, you know. It's yeah, BAME. <coughs> BAME, yeah. <laughs> is that how to pronounce it? I never know. Yeah, I think that's what everyone, yeah, I just say BAME. I say yeah. B-A-M-E. That's, that's, cool, cool, yeah. that's not that. also sounds cool. It sounds weird. It all it sounds weird, right? Because it's an artificial, Black Asian necessary. minority ethnic. That's yeah, it, that's it. it. Yeah. Black Asian minority ethnic. But, you know, having that collection of voices that are, um, and you all, all of you in that book are speaking honestly about your experiences. And it's so important for breaking through the kind of ignorance of white privilege that doesn't know that, you know, there's a lot of people that they're ignorant. They're not prejudiced. They're just ignorant. And if you push through that ignorance, then there are the ones that are horrendous racists. And mm. that's a whole different kettle of fish. But I wonder when you were approached to, to do The Good Immigrant, what, like, were you excited by the project immediately? Like, how did you feel about it? Um, I was daunted, to be honest. But it also gave me a passport to... Um is that the right word? It gave me permission, is a better word, yeah. It gave me permission to sort of talk about the things that I'd kind of brushed over in Springfield Road in my memoir. So I could really sort of go there and sort of describe how it was for, you know, my, my father's uh, Irish jazz, was an Irish jazz musician, and my mother was a Jamaican go-go dancer. And um, It's a great team, but, man. I know. <laughs> how else was I going to turn out? I mean, come <laughs> on, give me a break. But, um, but yeah, so in, in their sort of bohemian circle, it was all kind of quite cool. But out in the street, walking down the street in the mid you know mid to late 60s that was quite a thing and also whenever I say my dad was a jazz musician they always imagine my dad must be the black one there's like funny little things that just kind of but yeah I mean they they were part they were sort of pioneers they were quite it was quite a thing to be um yeah black and white a mixed and couple yeah, yeah yeah it was a thing it was a thing and then you know my mum having um you know mixed race babies she came up with so much you know, and in the 70s when I was, you know, I was very much the only brown girl in the playground. 
But now when you walk past the playground, there's loads of little green-eyed, brown, curly-tops, gabby-kneed, tomboy, sort of loud one in the corner screaming, why aren't you listening to me? (laughs) (laughs) And you called your piece Shade, um, Uh and you come back to that word Shade and all its different meanings and and how it applies to you and how it applies to this sort of larger issue at hand. Why Why did you focus on that word in particular? Oh, because I was in Thailand when I started writing it and um, skin whitening is massive, huge. I was in Bangkok <clears throat> and there were just adverts for skin lightening everywhere. I thought, how funny. Also, um, a woman sort of attacked me, not in Thailand, in Wales, <laughs> after a gig and sort of in, the, in a kind of, and she was really cross with me and um, told me to get back on my boat and all this kind of thing. And she had, and then I, I didn't know what to do. And then I just sort of stood up and everyone was like, Selena, leave it, it's not worth it. But I went, she need, and I just stood up and just held my arms out. And I said, do you need a hug? And I just hugged her. And um, and, and she burst into tears and said her mum had died. And, and it just all came out and it was all all right. And um, I was like, it's okay. And I just want you to know, I didn't mean to offend you. And maybe you've not heard my poetry before, but I'm all about the love, baby. It's all good. And then um, after she'd finished hugging me, and it was all good, and we all had a rum, and it was all fine, and we blah, blah, blah. I looked down at my jacket, and it was just like covered in orange foundation. Where, where you know, so it was like kind of, so that stayed with me as well. So it's like, you think I'm funny colored? I don't like, you know, sort of rub my face with a tea bag, you know, like, <laughs> or whatever it is they do to, to sort of get that orange kind of Trump look. So, so yeah, so it's kind of like, so it's all, so yeah, so it was all about that kind of appearance. And so that was on my mind and sort of, so you got kind of like celebrities kind of going orange and then you've got kind of in Thailand girls like literally just looking so peculiar, look, looking like they put chalk dust on their face. Like, aren't we funny? We're just, we're too dark and we're not happy. We're too light. And we're not happy. Like, yeah. So that, it started, yeah, yeah, it's quite simply there. But that feels so relevant to the political situation right now as well which is all about tribes isn't it that's Mm. kind of like the need for resistance because because of the fact that these tribes are like warring factions but they don't they don't seem to know what they're really fighting over a lot of the time i find you know that's the thing that i find scary and like you said with the with the shade thing and the the presentation of race whether you're mixed or white or black or whatever so many people don't feel okay the way that they are right mm. that's kind of the kind of central issue i think a lot of the time um on it on a on a massively different scale for some people and others and all of that mm. yeah i think it, i think the, the outside is the cool place to be that's what's so hilarious nobody really wants to be on the inside everyone knows the good work the passion the cool people you know nina simone and miles davis and the, you know they're, they're all on the outside man they're not do you know what i mean so everyone kind of wants the outside and yet you've got kind of you know this whole diversity issue with publishing and with you know and and so what are you saying so you want so the outside is cool and that's where the good work lives and we've all agreed kind of thing and then it's like but but we're still just gonna you know just sort of publish the great white shark and ignore all the other colorful fish in the sea and um and i just find that yeah it's just it's it's all about playing safe and i just can't stand it i can't stand that playing safe now it's not a time to be playing safe and feeling cosy and hike or whatever that word is that everyone's <laughs> tweeting about fuck your fucking hike come on come on there's work to <laughs> do yeah. we have work to do we're out in the cold and yeah. we need to work hard we really do yeah. we, really, we all want a better world but we've all got to sort of roll our sleeves and get involved and not to hope not hope that someone else is going to do it for us that's the thing i can't stand that really happy to sort of just you know retweet that's it i've done my bit for the day no you haven't come on come on yeah you have to get a bit messy yeah yeah 
I think it's time for another poem. Another poem. Yeah. <gasps> Let's do the anti hike. The anti hike poem. poem. <laughs> um, oh, I don't know what to do. Um, I'll tell you what. I'll do something. I'll do. I'll do this one because it's making me happy at the moment. So, where does resistance and rebellion start? Probably with when you're a teenager and you're smoking cigarettes and kissing boys. So, here's. Let's just go back there for a minute. And and so this is under the pier. Under the pier, I'd meet you here on Saturday lunchtimes in technicolours and rainbows. There were four of us that day, walking along Bottle Alley. I'd touch shards of saffron-coloured glass pressed into the bleached concrete and I'd wonder what came in yellow bottles. Carey balanced along the ledge like a gymnast on a beam, her wild gold hair trapped in the corners of her mouth. Claire wore thick mascara in turquoise and royal blue her eyelashes were insects, blue bottles and beetles' legs. Becky was tall and gangly. We talked about suicide. We believed that 1987 was going to be just like 1967. As we swigged from the Thunderbird's red, 50 pence more expensive than the blue, but we were all sick of scrumpy. The four of us sheltered there, from the rain and the boys and our parents. It was our secret place, that nook and ledge. With our backs against the sea wall, our voices drowned out by the crashing of waves, a wash of froth and brine, an echo of footsteps across the soft, rotting wood of the boardwalk above us. There were gaps between the planks, prisms of watery light, brown broken pipes emptied into slurps of sewage. Lightning flashed between the rusty barnacled legs of the dear old lady pier. And the magic mushrooms made the sea all blood and ink. As we shared ten B&H, bubblegum lip gloss smeared and slipped off the tip and the lip of the bottle. And we sang Purple Rain, memorised the words like a prayer, and never meant to cause you any trouble. With a tiny crumb of hash, we huddled around the light. We cupped our hands to get the spliff right. We were grounded because we had love bites. We were nearly 15 and we had cat fights. And we swore to be best friends forever, that our children would play together, one for all and all for one, forever and ever. And as the storm died, the rain stopped. And God was a solitary shaft of sunlight, hitting the sea with a silver path to the horizon. Under the pier, I'll meet you. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. And such a different tone from the Titanic poem. <laughs> yeah. I definitely was grounded for having love bites. <laughs> <laughs> so that My mum didn't know what grounding was. And we, I'd got caught for something. And so she phoned my friend's mum and said, what did you do when Claire and Selena, she went, I grounded her. And she went, hmm. So she put the phone down. And she went, Selena, what does grounding mean? And I said, oh, you just, I'm not allowed to go out. She goes, right, you are grounded. I'm like, okay. But the thing is, is I had an attic bedroom. So all it meant was that I couldn't go to the shops for my own cider and fags. So my friends would still come up and party up in my attic. <laughs> but I just couldn't go see Offie for myself. Mum didn't, re didn't realise that grounding meant no... No yeah. fun. Yeah, no fun. No fun. She's like, you're just not allowed out. Oh, damn. How am I going to get my fags? <laughs> <laughs> Could you go to the off-license for me, please, mum? Yeah. And uh, I think what that... <laughs> Octavia is still laughing. So I'm still laughing because my mother definitely knew what grounding meant. <laughs> um, but it did that. That was making me think. You know, resistance. Uh, in some ways, the teen years are the years of resistance. Yeah. They're, they, they're the years when you grow apart and you test out 
bad things and you you're a bit naughty and I think you know we can sort of learn from that in terms of what you're outgrew that (laughs) I think I'm still there but you know what you're talking about is don't play it safe I think we can learn from our teenage selves like we need now's the time to take risks yeah yeah and what else are you going to do between here and death hike (laughs) (laughs) you've got a point point. no it's true and actually the thing that's so nice listening to you read that and the reason it's so evocative is that the the way that poetry can just take you back to a mood in a way that prose can but it's a different it's a different way in right and actually yeah when you're a teenager you don't have a concept of consequences yet So you're so much more alive in the minute and tethered to what's happening right now. And actually, I feel like one of the things that we can learn from teenagers is that that the way that they feel everything so intensely, because they're like a little blue bottle. They've only lived a tiny amount of time, you know, Mm. so everything feels very real. And the apathy of of the adult and the person who doesn't want to relinquish their higer, higer, whatever, the comfort thing. Yeah. Whereas teenagers, you know, teenagers hang out under boardwalks in wet, sewagey places because yeah, yeah. they got nowhere else to go. Yeah. But they make it work, you know? I think there's uh, uh, there's something to, to be learned from that. Yeah, they were the glory days, aren't they? It's like, oh, it's so beautiful. You don't realize you're sitting on a sewage pipe. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so romantic. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, what, when you're writing, do you do you think your poetry is going to change um, after the, or has it changed after all of the things that have happened in this year, 2016? I think my, yeah, I mean, my poetry is constantly changing. Uh, if you stop growing, you're not living, are you? So constantly growing, reading, learning, trying to get it. But honestly, I think when I'm about 75, I'm going to be really good at it. really nail it but like yeah so I mean it's when I say that I say it as a joke but I kind of mean it I kind of feel like I still got so much to learn and yeah you You have a you have a great quote um in uh in your piece in The Good Immigrant you say the universal job of a writer is to write to write with empathy to be brave and honest to find joy conveying a journey and in sharing your passion can you talk a bit about that well, that, I, th- I mean, I think that's what I what I was trying to say is, you know, just basically is every day you wake up and it's you against the empty page. That's all you should be thinking about. Not I'm going to write as a woman or I'm going to write as a black woman or I'm going to write as a, you know, and I find that really troubling. All this kind of talk about diversity and everything and writing for the market. And I just find it really, uh, it's, no, write your story. Only you can write the way you write your voice is so important because it's your you know what I mean it's your voice only you like the most beautiful thing that whenever I talk about this I think about Laurie Lee and he wrote this beautiful essay and he in the essay he talked very much about how he had seven brothers and sisters and it would be one Christmas morning but it'd be a completely different Christmas seven versions of the same Christmas breakfast one would be in love one would be in trouble one would love their new bike one would be in you know what I mean one might have had a nightmare and that's what life is we're all coming at it from different we're all waking up on the same morning but it's a completely different morning for billions and billions and billions of us we're all seeing my um my partner um dicky is colorblind so he can't see the difference between sort of green and red we've kind of got an ongoing joke like you do realize i'm brown don't you <laughs> like he kind of sees everything in shades of gray like he even sees the uh, Eddie Knight, our producer and my partner is also colorblind. oh really yeah so he'll identify oh, this really he sees everything yeah. in kind of shades of uh shades of gray yeah. like even a sunset is a gradients of gray and um, the other day he was 
being romantic. I love telling this story. It makes me laugh. But he was being romantic. He was stroking my face. And he went, oh, you're so, your skin's so lovely. It's just like avocado. <laughs> now, you know, a bright green, bright mashed avocado on toast. He thinks that's, that's what colour I am to him. I am literally Kermit. <laughs> like, that's sort of um, not good, but isn't it nice that like that idea that you could be an avocado or you could be yeah. a sunset or you could be a tree or, I, you know, you could be a, polar bear you know that to, that we all to him see... it doesn't really matter yes. it puts it in perspective doesn't it yeah and that we all sort of see each other in different different shades there we yeah. go again there we go again but yeah <laughs> in different yeah we all sort of see each other in different ways it's amazing isn't it it's beautiful it is really beautiful and also so vital that's the thing about literature is you know it, it teaches people how to be empathetic mm. right you, you invite somebody into a story and they get in the shoes of the voice and they learn and they see from your perspective rather than their own one which is valid and important but also maybe is limited in these different ways and i think that's where you know like your poetry and, and the way that you perform it is so powerful because it oh, um thanks. well it's just it's real oh, and nice. like a lot <laughs> i am quite nice <laughs> if, I like you, if i like you <laughs> she's honest too though i am honest too so um selena i think we're just about out of time in this segment but um if you had to leave a message of resistance what would it be um i don't know i'm still thinking i've still got the picture in my head of people standing up in a train carriage and going i take other or i'm a good immigrant or i'm not really sure what the phrase will be it's got to sound like i am spartacus basically yeah some I kind of other. i am Spartacus. like fuck this mannequin challenge bullshit i think we should why are we all like taking photographs or whatever of us standing as still as possible that is the complete opposite of what we should be doing we should be roaring and screaming as much as possible and speaking up speaking out being strong believing in love that's Nailed pretty it. good great okay uh selena got way in. too much acid today <laughs> it has been a total delight uh thank you for coming in and we will be back with Selena to give book recommendations. But the next segment is Octavia and I talking about the theme of resistance in literature. Okay, this is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back with Octavia Bright. And now we're going to talk about our theme today, which is resistance. Um, we actually had a different theme planned, and then Donald Trump got elected, and we decided we needed to talk about resistance. So so that is what we're talking about. It's quite a big theme. Um, I think we need to start by just talking about what we mean by resistance literature. So for me, I, I think I think there's a distinction to be made between political writing. So, you know, all of the essays and think pieces and everything, you know, pamphlets, things like that. And maybe you'll disagree with me and literature. So poetry, books, um, things that are spaces in which we are asked to empathize um, and through that empathy to arrive at a political destination. What do you think about that? Boringly, I completely agree with you, but I, I will I will elaborate. Um, I think that the thing for me that 
is really important in resistance literature is a sense of urgency because it is about responding to a political situation or a time of oppression. Um, whereas, you know, political writing, pamphlets, journalism, they can be very um, immediate as well, but you're coming in at, at it from a more cerebral perspective, maybe more influenced by his history and kind of knowledge and facts. Um, whereas resistance literature, yeah, like you said, it's about empathy, heart, honesty, um, but also I think it's designed to to really reach into people and rouse them to a political cause one way or another. Um, that's what I think is, is incredibly important and why we decided we wanted to talk about it after um, the big orange potato became <laughs> the king of the free world, which is, it's so mad, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. mad. And I think, I think what Selena was saying before about the margins being the place to be, I think that's true of resistance literature too. It's like, um, where does this stuff emerge? Where does the best poetry, where does the best literature emerge? It's it's from the margins. It's from people who have been marginalized and oppressed, um, you know, over history. You know, we, we there are so many different kinds of resistance literature to mention, but, um, you know, I my area of expertise, if I can call it that, is American literature. And, and the best resistance literature is, you know, Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man, Native Son, James Baldwin, people who are writing about the experience of being black in America um, and oppressed, um, post-colonial literature, stuff by John Rhys. And, um, you know, that's, it's a way of writing this kind of literature as a way of thinking about having an experience that is outside of what is considered, you know, normal or, or acceptable yeah or acceptable yeah and also i think the process of writing and the process in the process of telling the story we work out what the story is you know you don't always know before um beforehand and that's what i love about particularly the role of poetry in in these sort of times because it can it can work itself out it gathers momentum as it's happening you know and as as it's being performed as it's being read but i also i did want to talk about um as ever, The Master of Margarita by Bulgakov, which just comes up again and again because it's such a fabulous book and actually kind of disproves what I was just saying because The Master of Margarita is a book that is about resistance in so many different ways, but it wasn't published until 25 years after Bulgakov died and it was actually written 10 years before that. So, you know, it was a, it, it's a book about, um, about stories and the importance of stories and uh, how we build notions of selfhood and all this kind of stuff and it relates to the bible and it relates to these all of these different forms of oppression and because of stalinist censorship it wasn't able to be published and that is an example of a piece of literature that in my view anyway is very timeless and is timely again now um but you know is completely out of its contemporary setting yeah okay so let's talk a bit about how effective do we think resistance literature is I mean we both are book lovers and poetry lovers and so it's sort of in our interest to say that books and poetry are really important and can make a difference and can change things um, but I think you know it's it's a question that we that we have to ask I, I was thinking especially of this Hamilton kerfuffle that's been in the news lately where um, Mike Pence who is uh, now the going to be the vice president um, who, you know, hates gay people, hates minorities. And he went to go see Hamilton, which is a play, you know, it's about the founding fathers, but reimagined with a cast of all people who are not white. Um, it's about immigrants. And he went and enjoyed the show. Um, and I don't know. It's like what if they can't change his mind, what's 
what's the point? Um, are, are we just trapped in our bubble? It was exactly what we were talking about with Selena earlier is like, can it, can it actually change the way that people think about, um, people who aren't like them and about the structures that of oppression that exist in, in our society? Yeah. And that's the really big, that's the big question. And that's the big issue with how you get from the margins, how you could, how you communicate from the margins to the mainstream without relinquishing your position as marginal and all of the perspective that gives you. And I think song is a really um, important part of it as well. And Hamilton's obviously a musical and, you know, that kind of, um, there's something primal about music as well. There's something again that kind of bypasses an intellectualism. But yeah, I think it's bonkers that Mike Pence went to that. And then the way that they responded when the actor at the end spoke out and said, you know, we are the marginal Americans that we don't think you're going to represent. It, it, it's it's fascinating. Yeah, crazy. And I should just say that I, I think we both have to acknowledge that we're speaking from an immense position of privilege as two yeah. white women. Um, and like, you know, there's only so much that we can speak for the marginalized anyway. Or if at all, it's yeah. more about creating space and holding space, isn't it? And yeah. as a white woman of a particular level of education or whatever, you have access in ways that many, many other groups don't. Um, and, you know, I think that's the other thing that's, that's important when talking about the role of literature is, you know, we talk about a lot on the show that neither of us believe that there should be parameters put around what people can write about and who they write and how they write. Having said that, the point about resistance and the many voices that need the space to say what they need to say is they have to be saying it authentically and directly and not filtered through the voice of someone who's in a position of, of much greater power or ease and comfort, I guess, in the world. Yeah. And having just said, I don't know how effective literature really is a, a, a in resistance i think it is very effective um just gonna nail my flag to the mast <laughs> nail my colors nail to the point to the ground i, I don't know, know. Just, i'm just gonna on. do it <laughs> but i do think you know novels have been for me in education you know i'm um and i think it's partially because novels ask us to think about morally complex situations and empathize with people who who are not like us um in, in many many different ways and I know that my my personal world is is richer for it, and I think the the world is richer for these depictions of people that make us think about them in different ways, and and poetry even more so in some ways because poetry is so immediate in the way that literature is is or novels rather are are sort of distanced. Yeah, totally. Well, you I know you wanted to talk about Claudia Rankin's Citizen, which is actually a book that you gave me um, a little while ago, and blew my socks off completely. It's an extraordinary piece of work. And it's angry and raw, but it's clever and contained as well. It's incredibly powerful because it has that important balance between, because, you know, as a woman, as a black woman for Claudia Rankin, you know, you end up straddling all of those different expectations. You don't, you know, don't, you're not supposed to be perceived as too angry or too scary and all this kind of bullshit that comes before the voice, you know, um, and that, that's another question, isn't it? It's how you, how you maintain your authentic voice without getting caught up in all of that nonsense prejudice that works to keep your voice hidden and and, and um restrained i guess yeah i'd say um after the election and after brexit i i found myself turning to poetry a lot more than usual and uh there's that great coleridge quote that's um what is it 
It's here. I wrote it down. Prose is words in their best order and poetry is the best words in the best order. Yeah. And I'm really Bam. feeling I'm really yeah. feeling that right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. I'm really feeling that that poetry is can express things um much more succinctly and emotively and openly. You know, a lot of people were posting uh The Second Coming by William Butler Yeats, which um you know for obvious reasons but i i you know that it, it hits you to your core well you know the other thing i think is so important about it is that structures of language can be um can be restrictive and can be tied to particular dominant ideologies and you know literature western literature <clears throat> the voice of the white male is so dominant and there's a particular kind of language that gets used that can be really, really ex excluding to others. And what is amazing about poetry is because you get to fuck with the system of language. You get to take language, dismantle it, use it you know, in your own way, um, which I think is incredibly important because there's this kind of literary pedantry that goes on that is you know, about expressing yourself in the correct way and everything. That's actually, it's, it's another form of repression. And it's something that, you know, I love the BBC, but I also find sometimes their coverage of literature and literary voices um, very old fashioned and very like that kind of 70s way of, you know, you, your grammar must be perfect and your spelling must be right if you're going to express a sentiment properly. And when in times of political nightmare, it's like, fuck that. No one's got time for a correct sentence. I want to know what you're telling me. I want the sentiment. I don't really care how you get it to me if there's integrity in the voice. And that's where poetry gets to come into its own in a really amazing way. Yeah, and it's it's been a discussion in the publishing industry in this past year. Um, I think The Good Immigrant partially came out of this discussion, um, which is that, you know, the publishing industry in terms of what it puts out there. Well, first of all, it's in a very undiverse industry in terms of who it hires, but also the voices that are coming out of sort of mainstream publishing right now are very limited in terms of what they're expressing and what the authors look like and what backgrounds they're coming from. And I think that the publishing needs to get better too. And that's that's one way of resistance. And I know as somebody who works in the industry, it's like we're thinking a lot about, okay, how do we how do we actually do that and maybe maybe mainstream i don't know maybe maybe it has to come from the margins but that seems like a cop-out um to say oh let's let the indie publishers take care of that let's let people who are willing to take risks take risks um i think it's about being really aware of the limitations of of the publishing industry right now yeah absolutely i also think another thing we should totally mention is <clears throat> excuse me the the number of writers that are also activists and writers that are activists throughout their whole career, not just in response to a particular um, set of political stimulus, stimuli, I should say. Um, I was thinking about Margaret, Margaret Atwood, who's one of my favorite writers, but she's, you know, she's been an activist in her own way her entire career. She's put out so many books um, and she has her particular issues that she is quite relentless with and it's extraordinary and brilliant and important. Um, I was also thinking about Junot Diaz and Edwidge Danticat who are both writers that I really love who um, are writing a lot about Haitian and Dominican identity in America but also you know um, kind of in the in they offer their readers the chance to come and inhabit this totally different society. I mean for me as like a white British woman reading Junot Diaz's short stories in particular um, 
was an amazing way of accessing something that I have no access to and I shouldn't have any access to, you know, it's kind of, um, but it, that, that it's, it's reading things like that that also shine a light on your own privilege. And that can be a very uncomfortable experience, but everybody should be having it. It's the only way um, to break down those barriers. And, and what you were saying about publishing, I mean, there's, there's some, you know, people like Dead Ink um, and, uh, and Zero Books and stuff who are doing really interesting work in that arena and, and trying to deal with this insane class bollocks as well that in this country prevents certain voices from coming forward. Um, but it, it's a massive conundrum. I don't know what you, I don't know, you know, there's not one solution, is there? No, it's uh, just to get back to what you're saying about Margaret Atwood, I think uh, she's a great example of how science fiction and dystopian novels can be a great way of um, exposing political evils and political ills and resisting. So um, The Handmaid's Tale is a great example of that. You My know, it, ta yeah. it takes a lot of the ideas that people have about women, especially in our society, to their logical end and shows the horror of it. Um, I think 1984 is another example of that. Um, uh, uh, the Underground Railroad, which just won the National Book Award, um, which I haven't read, but it it sounds like that's a that's a sort of similar alternate reality kind of future where um, slavery is still legal and the Underground Railroad is actually an, a railroad, which I just think is the best concept because of course when you hear about the Underground Railroad when you're a kid, you think it's an actual railroad. Um, and he has it as a subway going from state to state. Oh, cool. um, so, yeah, there. let's resist. Let's resist. Um, well, there was this thing that Milan Kundera says that the novel can shape our moral imagination. And that's kind of exactly what you're talking about. And the thing about The Handmaid's Tale is it's so spooky because it feels like some of that shit's actually coming true, you know? And with the Trump um, presidency, it doesn't bear thinking about but we have to be thinking about it all the time and working out how to resist. Yeah. Okay. So what's your favorite resistance literature? Well, my, okay. The book I'm going to talk about, I haven't actually finished it yet. It's a massive, it's a heavy hitter um, called The Melanch Melancholy of Resistance by Laszlo Krasnohorkai, which I picked up um, a little while ago, translated by George Sertes, who's one of my favorite living poets, um, who's Hungarian and translates it into English. And uh, I actually bought it before the US election because resistance has been on my mind since Brexit, which I found so devastating, uh, as did you know most of the people in my little echo chamber. Um, and I saw the title, The Melancholy of Resistance, and I thought, God, that's exactly how I'm feeling right now. You know, this melancholy, um, overwhelmed by it all um, and then started to read it and it's, it's not easy to read at all it's a difficult book and I realized it's known as being a difficult book um, and uh, it was printed in Hungarian in 1989 and translated in in 98 um, and it's long sentences he the author himself describes it as reality examined to the point of madness um, and it does drive you a bit crazy it's you know like I said I haven't finished it yet I'm kind of going at it um, but I'm loving it and it's it's very funny um, Surtees describes it as a slow lava flow of narrative, which I think is is good. It's it gets to the heart of it. It's a bit like reading Kafka as well. It's like you know all folding in on itself, and it's very cerebral. But really, what he's talking about is the nitty gritty of human beings and like how basically base and nasty we are when we're threatened. Um, but yeah, I haven't finished it yet. The, the, the bit that I know is coming that I haven't got to yet is that the circus comes to town and they have this one attraction, which is this massive dead whale. Um, and these preserved embryos, and I think it gets pretty funky around that. Um, nice. Yeah, I'll let you know when I finish it how I feel about it. But at this point, it's inspiring me greatly and frustrating me too. But I'm quite, I'm kind of enjoying it in a bit of a sick way. 
being frustrated because I am frustrated. Hmm. So I'd say, yes, <laughs> speechless. <laughs> Dead whales. Um, so one of my favorite resistance novels is John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath, published in 1939, um, a book that every American high school student reads in high school. Um, and it's a novel that, you know, it was set in a historical context um, and was saying something very specific about its day, but also I think transcends that in terms of um, imagining people um, who are being oppressed by a system. So in this case, it's um, migrant farmers who are forced west by the Dust Bowl and, and forced to work in horrible, horrible conditions in, in California on the farms there, um, picking all kinds of fruit. Um, and it's so human and so well-written and and just shocking and inspiring. And uh, it actually changed laws, which I think is amazing. That's um, incredible. Eleanor Roosevelt supposedly loved it. And, um, and it was one of the things that inspired her to lobby um, for hearings about the conditions of migrant workers, which subsequently changed federal labor laws in the United States. So I think one of the reasons I really like this book is because it seems really hopeful uh, example of the way that literature can actually change things that literature is resistance and leads to change and yeah. and I want to believe that that's true and I'm going to keep believing that that's true yeah that book devastated me as a teenager I also read it and but I didn't know it changed laws that's amazing that's an incredibly hopeful message yay vive la resistance Okay, this is Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back with Octavia Bright and also Selena Godden for our monthly book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to start? Always. Um, I'm going to recommend a fabulous book called Days Without End by Sebastian Barry, who's an Irish playwright and also a novelist and a poet. And um, I came across it on Book at Bedtime. Our listeners will not be surprised to hear because I love Book at Bedtime like a, a good little joke. nerd. It's a running joke. I'm the only person in England who listens to it. But I do listen to it. No, no. A lot of people listen to it, just not usually your demographic, <laughs> I think, is the joke. <laughs> oh but God, go on. I just had to have the joke explained to me. That's so embarrassing. <laughs> anyway, it's a great, it's a fucking fabulous book. And it was a real surprise. The, the Book at Bedtime pickings have been a bit slim lately. And this one knocked my socks off. So I bought it and I and I read it on the page um, and the Guardian called it a lyrical love letter to the American West but it's basically a love story about this w this um, spoilers by the way so if you don't want to have it ruined um, but it's about these these gay men and this uh, Native American girl that they kind of adopt as their daughter and Thomas McNulty who's the n narrator ends up basically cross-dressing and wearing dresses and and everything and they're kind of riding on donkeys across the the wild wild west and they're fighting in the civil war and it's just such an original and unusual kind of way in but he's his characters are phenomenal they're so real and mcnulty is this kind of gruff voiced um very kind of masculine guy who just discovers this inner femininity and it's where he feels comfortable in this time of horrific violence and you know he's dealing with really big themes about race and identity um and war um but he does it with this 
really light romantic human touch and it's just it's beautiful it's a beautiful beautiful love story and it doesn't feel gimmicky at all because it's so real um and he just takes you through you know sex masculinity and the descriptions of the landscape and it's totally brilliant and i think um you can tell he's a playwright because the characters feel real in that way you know you feel like you've really spent time with them um and john cole who is mcnulty's lover i fell completely in love with as well <laughs> over the course of the book so when i finished it yeah it was i was sad to say goodbye to them all um so yeah i recommend it massively great um so next selena uh i see you've brought in a number of books with you yeah i've brought it I've we brought asked it for one pile. and you've brought <laughs> you brought five I've i think five. <laughs> okay so i'm just going to race through them okay yeah. so the first if you want to read some really amazing resistance poetry you need to check out the word life anthology um it's a it's a really beautiful anthology of poets it's edited by joe chris um, I'm doing quite a lot of gigs up north at the moment, kind of up in Wakefield and Sheffield and Leeds and Liverpool. And a lot of those poets we don't hear about quite so much down here in London. So if you want to sort of broaden your sort of, you know, what what people are talking about and how they're writing about everything, resistance, that one, word life. Okay, next, An Unreliable Guide to London, a beautiful book that's a, a collection of short stories and um, pieces about London, but done in a wonky kind of through a mirror kind of way. Some of them are quite factual. Some of them are completely fictional. My one was kind of, yeah, my one's based in Camden and I'm not going to tell you any more, but um, my one's um, The Blood. Ah, oh, no. Oh, look, I've got it all signed. But yeah, <laughs> it's a lovely, lovely book and it's um, published by Influx Press, who are amazing independent publishing is where it's at the other book that i'm gonna um also a collection of poetry is untitled two um, which has been published by the noiriki boys up in scotland again we get quite a lot of what's going on in london so this is to sort of broaden and have a listen to what um, our peers are talking about up there in scotland but it's 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 got an amazing lineup it's got everyone in it man it's got like jackie Kay and everyone so it's beautiful and it's got a gold cover the good immigrant edited by nick s shukler clearly an amazing book and we won an award last night and drank all the rum in the whole of london yeah so it was the books are my bag readers choice award right? that's what it yeah. was called yeah oh, i couldn't even remember that <laughs> i don't even remember why we were there or anything but so by the end of the anyway <clears throat> less said the better um so anyway so it's an amazing book it's done incredibly well and i'm really proud to have somehow snuck myself in there because there's some amazing writing in there and I've made some beautiful friends and, yeah. it's, and I'm really excited about it. And, you know, we didn't mention in the main segment, but it's crowdfunded um, on Unbound. It was crowdfunded in record time. It was like yeah. done in three days. We It was amazing. And there's still events and things. So look out. If you follow me on Twitter or Nikesh on Twitter, there's still events. We're still going up and down the country. I'm at Lancaster University next week. And then the week after that, we're all at the big green bookshop in North London. So that's coming up um, and it's all free. And so, you know, come along to that. And then my last book that I'm going to mention that I didn't write and I'm not in is uh, My Name is Leon by Kit Duval. I absolutely love this book. And I met her last night and she's so nice. And I nearly cried. Let me cry now. She's a good one. That's a good book. I really like it. It feels, I think she's, she's Caribbean and Irish, same as me. And I feel like I've got someone on my team now, like another girl caribbean the irishy one and so uh, yeah i really hope to be doing some events with her in the new year uh, i think she's amazing yeah so um i haven't actually read it yet but i know that it's a, a young child narrator 
really infectious voice yeah um, it's really that's what um i really it was yeah it's really like a kind of i feel like it's a sibling to springfield road whereas my one is the narrator is my nine-year-old self mine's a memoir obviously and this is a fiction and then hers is like a it almost is like my brother so it's like my brother's book kind of thing so and they're set in the same time and it's set in the same era there's so many um so many uh, things that are similar actually kit said to me last night that she grew up on a road called springfield road she was like who is this selena gordon springfield road like early 80s what what so there's like quite a lot of beautiful correlations and coincidences there yeah when i met her last night we just hugged it was like hello it's like yeah it was really good amazing great (laughs) i don't think i can follow that up but uh (laughs) so i am going to recommend a book called hot milk by deborah levy um, which I know Octav- Octavia read recently and liked, loved, ish, ish. 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 interesting. Okay. Um, this is Levy's second book after Swimming Home. Um, I haven't read Swimming Home, so I can't say whether it's better or worse. But I think I want to read Swimming Home now because I'm very intrigued by her in a way that I maybe wasn't until I read this book. Um, it's a slim book. It's a weird book. It's a I, I don't really know quite how to describe it. And I think that's one of the things I liked about it. Um, it's about a young woman named Sophia who takes her mother to a small sun-drenched Spanish village in search of a cure for her mother's seemingly incurable, possibly uh, not real paralysis that she suffers in her legs. Um, and the world they encounter there, or at least the one that's sort of filtered through Sophia's voice, who she's the narrator, you know, it could be one from a dream. It's just uh, filled with these... Uh, the sea is filled with these singing, stinging um, uh, jellyfish called medusas. And there's this strange Spanish doctor who has a cat who's having uh, like kittens as the, and, and, you know, it's just, everything is, is very, she meets this woman who she falls in love with, who's this strange um, Norwegian uh, seamstress and, and just things like that, that, that they feel they're sort of conjured from a dream. Um, And, Sophia, the character is half Greek and she studied anthropology. And so um, you have that extra sort of filter of her seeing things in the context of myths and anthropology and larger ideas about how we live and the strangeness of how we live. Um, And so this sounds kind of horribly highbrow, but it's not. Um, It's really funny. Um, I found it very sexy as well. Yeah, and it's very sexy. That's right. Um, Very, very sexy. and, and, And like about sort of the way we project and receive sexuality in, in I think very interesting ways and just about, about being a young woman and trying to define yourself and, and figure out who you are and, and not always knowing. So I, and having a mother. Yes. Yes. Which is the intense yeah, thing. Yeah. It's very, yeah. I didn't, I think, um, it's interesting to hear what you pick up on. <laughs> oh my God. It's like therapy. Yeah. <laughs> therapy um, on the radio. Yeah. I, I think I, I like responded to different, themes um but but yes i agree um but anyway i think i really i really enjoyed it and it made me think a lot and i'm i'm really glad i read it so i'd recommend it okay well that is about all the time we have for today um thank you so much to selena godden you've been amazing you've inspired us uh we're gonna go fight the good fight and also to eddie knight for production and music Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and on nts.live. You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Please come and say hello. We love to hear from you. We'll be back next month with Emily Witt talking about her amazing book, Future Sex. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright and this is Literary Friction.